If I were to ask you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, I already know there's one name you would mention above all other names, amen? And that is the name of Jesus Christ. Did you know that the Bible shows us in the book of Revelation that God has a special three? God has a what? A special three that he has sent to you and me in our time to do a special work in these last days. Somebody says, Brother Paul, we already know about the special three. God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? All right, I'm just making sure we know how to count, beloved. I'm just making sure. But I'm talking about another special three sent to us by God to do a special work in these last days. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, they're known as the first, the second, and the third angel. And these three angels, beloved, have a message for us tonight. Now, now, I'm not saying that anything I've said prior to this night is insignificant. I believe it's all significant. But if there's any night that I was glad you were here to listen to, it's this one right now. God has something special to say to you and I this evening. Are we ready to receive it? Are we ready to receive the... I heard, let's go. I like that. Amen. So then let's go, beloved. Introducing Revelation's Big Three. Now, I want you to understand from the very offset of this message that it is, in fact, what the title implies. It is an introduction. It is what? Beloved, there are things, wonderful things in the Word of God. And because time is not uh, uh, as extensive as it would require to cover all of it, we are simply introducing the subject tonight. Do you know that God intends for you and I to go back to our homes, open our Bibles for ourselves, and begin to study? The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we're going to begin with this introduction in the book of Revelation, chapter 14. Turn with me there. In the book of Revelation, chapter 14, now as we're turning there, I know that some of you may be thinking, the book of Revelation, isn't that a a scary book? Isn't isn't that a book full of uh, uh, dragons and beasts and and dungeons and, and, and whatever else we may be thinking? Isn't that a book that, you know, it's almost taboo in today's day and age to speak on the book of Revelation? Beloved, think about the title of the book, Revelation. It implies that God has something that he wants to do what? Reveal to you and I. Did you know that there's nothing about the book of Revelation that God designs to be hidden from his people? In the book of Amos, chapter 3, I believe it's verse 7, the Bible says, Surely the Lord God will do, guess how much? Nothing. Except he reveals to his servants his secret. He reveals his secret unto his servant, the prophets. God desires for us to understand something. And the entire book of Revelation, if you could read it just from its title, tells us that God has something he wants not to hide, but to reveal. We're in the book of Revelation chapter 14, amen? Beginning at verse 6, the Bible says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having what, beloved? The everlasting gospel. Pause there. Is the gospel important? It's the most important thing in the universe. If we don't have that, then we can't be saved. The Bible says that Jesus gave a commission to bring the gospel into all the world, and whosoever believes on it shall be saved. But if we don't believe, we can't be saved. Isn't that right? Is the gospel important? Well, the Bible says there's an angel 
that has something called the everlasting gospel. Now, this is interesting. Follow. It says, he had the everlasting gospel to do what with it? To preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and every kindred and every tongue and every people. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and verse 14? When he said this gospel of the kingdom would be preached where? Into all the world for a witness, and then the end would come. Now we have this thing called the first angel, according to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, who has an everlasting gospel that Christ has addressed to every nation, every kindred, every tongue, and every people. Do you suppose that that is a coincidence? Or is the message that this first angel carries actually the gospel referred to by Christ in Matthew 24 and verse 14? It's the exact same gospel. The fact that the angel's gospel is called the everlasting gospel means that nothing about it has altered from the days of Christ when it was given. Let's continue in verse 7. What did this angel have to say? Saying with a loud voice, do what? Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Verse 8. And there followed what? Another angel. Now, now follow with me. I want to make sure we can count. If we've already seen what the first angel brought, then the next in the sequence would not be the fifth angel. It would be the... Did I hear third? Oh, sister? Second angel. Amen? So in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, we see what is called the first angel's message. But by the time we reach verse 8, there is another in the sequence. Let's see what he says. The Bible says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse 9. And the third angel. The what, beloved? I know that's where you were going, my sister. That's why I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't pick on you too much. The Bible says in verse 9, and the third angel did what? Followed them. Question. Let's say you had three people walking in a line. One goes into the car, the second goes into the car, and the third follows the other two into the car. When the car finally reaches its destination, right, how many people does it bring to you? So then the very fact that the third angel follows the first and the second means that the three are, guess what, inseparable. To take one is to take how many? Somebody said three. I was looking for all, but three is correct. To take one is to take all. If you accept the first angel, you must accept what the second angel says. But if you accept what the two of them said, you have to accept what the third angel says as well. Beloved, this is not... Uh, you know, in baseball, they have a terminology. They say three strikes and you're out. God sent three messages. Three messengers, rather. Because what I want us to see from the Bible is while there are three messengers... There is only one message. Three angels, one message. 
How many angels? How many messages? And in order to get the message in its entirety, you and I have to accept everything that God has to say in his word. Now, what's interesting is I, I've heard ministers before that will, you know, quote from Revelation chapter 14 uh, and verse 6, dealing with the third angel. They'll talk about the, 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 the fire and the torment and the brimstone and all of these things that happen as a result of rejecting the gospel. But those same ministers from the pulpit would never tell us anything about what the second angel says or what the first angel says. We saw from our Bible in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9 that you cannot separate the three. The Bible says, and the third angel did what? Followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man does what? Worship. Now, if, you, if you're, if, I don't know if you're of the sort, but I am. If you're of the sort that likes to put little uh, highlights in your Bible, I'm telling you, beloved, if I, if I were to show you what my Bible looks like today, some of you would say that it looks like a bowl of Fruit Loops. Skittles. I take my time, and as I'm going through my Bible and I see something, and the Lord is showing me something, I'll take a, a, a color and I'll, I'll underline it so that I don't forget the point that God was trying to make. It's very important to get accustomed to Bible study, and anything that we find important, we tend to mark. That word worship in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 9, I would advise that we put a dot or we highlight or we do something with it. The reason why is because in these last days, beloved, you're going to see very soon that worship is going to pay, play a very critical and pivotal role. Did you hear what I said? Worship is going to play a very pivotal and critical role. Is it, does it matter to God who we worship? Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way. Can I find another way to God? Jesus says, I am the truth. Is there another truth that would lead me to the Father? Jesus says, I am the life. And so in order to, 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 to be all right, or more than all right, in order to be saved, beloved, it is imperative that I have an accurate understanding of the gospel and that the God I serve be only the God in heaven. Is that who we desire to serve? Do we desire to serve the only God that is in heaven? Well, the Bible says here in the in third angel's message, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship who? The beast? I want you to think, beloved. The first angel said, Worship him that made the heavens and the earth. Amen? Now, that's not a message that, that bothers me at all. If you're telling me to worship the Creator, that, that sounds wonderful. You know, you know uh, parents will tell their children uh, when the children is in are in trouble, they'll usually say, You know, I brought you into this world. <laughs> Brother said, Amen. I brought you into this world, and what? The principle behind the statement is that you're coming into this world you owe to your parents. Isn't that right? And so your parents have a right to your respect. That's all it means, amen? Now, it may mean some other things. But the principle is sure. God is the one who created us. He's the one who brought us into the world. So when the first angel comes, and declares that he is worthy of my worship, I have no issue with that. My question with you is, how did we, by verse 9, reach a place where there was anyone in the world worshiping what the Bible calls the beast? The first angel directed our attention to the Creator. Praise God. The second angel said that Babylon was fallen. Praise God. 
And then by the time the third angel shows up, he says that there is a class of people on the earth that would be doing something called worshiping the beast. We're not unpacking that tonight. I just want us to begin to think. Isn't that strange? The first angel says, worship God. We hear the message, and somehow there are those of us who end up worshiping the beast. Does anyone in this room want to worship the beast? By show of hands. Amen. We should worship the Lord God alone, my brother. There is not a person in this room who wants to worship the beast. I stand with you in saying that if there's anything that leads to the worship of the beast, I don't want it. How about you? So then we have to follow on with the third angel. The Bible says, if any man worship the beast and his image and receives his mark, his what? Did you know that the mark of the beast is tied in with worship? Side note. The Bible says, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, I have to say this before I move forward, because I've heard people concerned, and I want to put it to rest from the very first night of this subject. Brother Paul, is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand whether you've been vaccinated or not. That's your business, I believe. Amen? What I will ask you is for any of you who have been vaccinated, how many of you got that vaccine in your forehead? The Bible says that the mark of the beast goes in the right hand or in the forehead. It either goes in the hand or in the forehead. And the very fact that the vaccine is not being placed in the forehead of any man, at least not to my knowledge, should tell us that that is not the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is something that goes, the Bible says, in the forehead or in the hand. The mark of the beast is something the Bible says that is directly and intimately connected with the issue of worship. Beloved, do not lose these points. Because in nights to come, we're going to be talking about the mark of the beast and see from the Word of God what it is. I think that it is imperative that we know what it is so that no one in this room gets it. What do you say? No, Brother Paul, it doesn't matter that much. I think it is a matter of eternal life, whether or not we understand this thing. The Bible continued in verse 10. Speaking of those who received the mark of the beast, it said, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest. What does the Bible say they have? No rest. Day nor night. Who worship the beast. The Bible says that the worship of the beast is of such a nature, follow, the worship of the beast is of such a nature that those who worship it find themselves with no rest. Did you know that the worship of the Creator gives you rest? And so by the time the third angel brings his message, everything he is saying is in direct consequence to what you and I have chosen to do with the first angel's message and the second angel's message. 
The Bible says that these people have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receives the mark of his name. My favorite text in all of the Bible. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Do you know that the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, biblically, were never meant to be antagonistic to one another? Some of us in our Christian experience, we say, Brother Paul, uh, uh, I don't know about the law. I don't know about keeping, uh, uh, not, you know, lying or stealing or any of those things. I don't know anything about the law. All I know is faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Would Jesus reject you for having the faith of Jesus? No. He would simply ask, if it is the faith of Jesus that you have, then why doesn't your faith worketh? By love. Do you know that the faith that Jesus had worked by love? Jesus says, I of mine own self could do nothing. But the Father in heaven, he does the works that are in me. Do you know the Bible says that God is love? And so commandment keeping... And the faith of Jesus, according to Revelation chapter 14, were never meant to be antagonistic. If you had one, guess what you would have? The other. If you had the faith of Jesus, you would be walking in his commandments. If you had the commandments, you wouldn't be a legalist, you'd be a believer. That is what the Bible says. Now, we can have differences of opinion all day and all night. By the grace of God, I am of the sort that if I can see it in the Word, that's where I leave it. What do you say? Amen? Is it safe to give Jesus the final say, my sister? Absolutely. What I want us to understand about these three messages is that there are... Let me correct that because I told you three angels, one message. I don't want to be incorrect. What I want you to understand about the message of the three angels is that there are at least five parties. How many? Five parties that are represented here in the delivery process. We have Jesus the one who sent the message. You have the, second, the you have the first, the second, and the third angels who deliver the message, and then you have the world to whom the message is addressed. In the book of Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus gave what is known as the gospel commission to his disciples. Is that right? He told them to preach the gospel into all the world, and whoever would believe it could be saved, but whoever should reject it could not be saved. In the book of Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the Bible said that that gospel was the power of God unto salvation to those that believe. It was the what? The power of God. So in reality, the everlasting gospel that that first angel in Revelation 14 carries, he carries power. What does he carry? Is there anyone in this room who needs some power right now? Have you ever tried to make a phone call on a dead battery? It doesn't work, does it? Now, if it does, you've got a special phone. Share that with Brother Paul. But, I'm, but from what I know, that does not work. What it needs is to be charged. It needs power. God knows that those who profess to be Christians on earth are often lacking in our experience. 
God knows that those who claim to be Christians also often push outside the ones who should be coming in because of our hypocrisy. But that's not because we don't love the Lord necessarily. It is because we have no power to do otherwise. Do you know that God can be working on your heart to love him? And as you're responding, there's hypocrisy that's still on you. And he has to cleanse you of that as you move along in the salvific process. Jesus is able to cleanse us entirely when we surrender all, but he begins with us right where we are. Do you know that Jesus can be with a hypocrite tonight, right now? Everybody's being quiet. Christ can be with a hypocrite even right now. But do you know that Christ is going to take the hypocrite and actually make them living epistles of what they profess to believe? Jesus is able to do that. This is what it means to send power through the first angel's message. If it is power that you need, then it is the first angel's message you must receive. Amen? So God sent power through the first angel into all the world. Now the first angel carries that gospel message. In Matthew 24 and verse 14, the Bible said that this gospel of the kingdom would be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Somebody says, Brother Paul, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. Yes, I am. You believe in the first, second, and third angel's message. Yes, I do. How long have you been preaching it? For as long as I believed it. Why hasn't the end of the world come yet? Is that a good question? Why hasn't the end of the world come yet? I want to show you something. When Jesus said the end would come as a result of preaching the everlasting gospel, we're going to the book of Matthew chapter 13. When Jesus said that the gospel would bring the end of the world, what did he mean? Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 39. I want you to hear what the end of the world is according to Christ. The Bible says in Matthew 13, beginning at verse 39, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. Speaking of the tares, the harvest. The what, beloved? The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. The Bible says that the end of the world is the harvest. The end of the world is the harvest. So if the gospel of the first, second, and third angel's message is the true gospel, what should follow it? The harvest. Does that make sense? If Jesus says that the preaching of the gospel would bring the end of the world, and then in another place he says the end of the world is the harvest, then if you have the right gospel with the first angel, what should come after it is the harvest. Revelation chapter 14. I want you to see something, beloved. I want you to understand that we are on sure ground this evening as we're going into the Word of God. Because there are many Gospels out there in the world today, and I want you to know from the Word of God and upon the authority of the Bible alone that we are on sure ground. In the book of Revelation chapter 14, in verse 6, we saw the first angel who came with this everlasting Gospel. I want you to jump down to verse 14. The Bible says, after the preaching of the first, the second, and the third angel's message, I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud, one sat like unto who? Who is that, beloved? That's Jesus. 
The Bible says, One sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and do what? Reap. For the time is come for thee to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. The Bible says that if God gets a hold of a people who truly believe, not merely profess, but who truly believe in the first, the second, and the third angel's message, the very next thing we should expect is the coming of Christ for the harvest. Jesus said that would be the end of the world. Isn't that right? So, beloved, when we're talking about the first, the second, and the third angel's message, we're not talking about something that Brother Paul just loves to talk about from the Bible. We're talking about the only gospel that can bring an end to a miserable world. Think about how many people you know who have been affected by this pandemic in which we find ourselves. Do you know how alarmed they would be if they heard from you and I that we know the secret to bring it all to an end? Do you suppose that if they knew what we're getting ready to know here tonight, they would want to tell their neighbors? Some of them would want to tell their doctors, amen? Because there's some stuff going on out there right now. Some of them would want to tell their teachers and their classmates and their closest friends. Beloved, we are privileged not only to look for the coming of Christ, but by the grace of God to be placed in a position where we can be a part of the hastening process. I showed you on the, the, the second night, I believe it was, that Christ is not waiting for... Lord, I do not like when I give the answers. Help me in Jesus' name. I told you in the second night that we are not waiting on Christ to return. That, that, that's not what's going on here. But rather, Christ is waiting on a people to receive him. What do you say? If we would receive God in our lives, do you know that Jesus... It, it, this is why the Bible describes it as a harvest. It describes Christ as a farmer. Imagine ripened tomatoes. You guys don't like tomatoes? Sometimes I put tomatoes on my sandwich, all right? And the tomato makes the sandwich perfect. If the sandwich doesn't have the tomato for me, then, then you know, I need to go to the grocery store and I need to get some what? Tomatoes. I can only imagine what it's like to be a farmer on your property, country living, beloved, sitting there planting the seed, and when the harvest comes, you see the ripened tomato and you're watching that thing, and if you're Brother Paul, guess what? You immediately go and you pick every single one. Now, temperance in all things, so I'm not going to eat every single one right away. Amen? But I'm going to pick every single one as soon as it is ripe. Do you know that in the same way, when Jesus sees the manifestation of his character in his people, in the same way, when Jesus sees his character reflected in Christians on this earth, Jesus is simply watching and waiting. And when the harvest is ripe, the Savior is coming to claim. The Savior is coming to pick every ripened tomato. Uh, whatever other fruit you want to be, you can be that. But the point is, God is coming to claim a people, beloved, who are ready. The question is, where are we in our experience? Are we still seeds? Have we received any type of water? Early and latter rain, dropping gems. Have we received the sunshine of the righteousness of Christ? 
God is planting right now, and I believe, I believe with all of my heart, God is planting right now, and he is watering, and he is nurturing, and he is helping us to grow up into the fullness of the stature of men and women in Christ. I want to become what God wants me to be, so that Jesus can at long last come and receive me. No farmer yet that I've ever met watches a ripened harvest and leaves it there hoping for something else. No, when it's right, beloved, that's when you go and get it. Now, the first angel declared that the judgment hour, this is a very interesting point. In verse 7, the Bible said, saying with a loud voice, Revelation 14, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is coming in the future and worship him. Is that what the Bible says? Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, the Bible says that this angel said with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment, next two words, is come. This first angel comes with a message that doesn't proclaim a judgment somewhere far down in the future. It prepares a people to stand before a holy God. Guess when? Right now, my brother, that's right in our day, and in our age. Now, we know the world has to respond to the gospel message. We can either receive it, or we can reject it. Isn't that right? The choice is ours. We can either receive it, or we can reject it, but the choice is ours. Beloved, based on what we do with the gospel, do you know that there are only two classes of people on this earth? You can call them believers or non-believers. You can call them righteous or unrighteous by the grace of God alone. Amen. And Christ is coming back. He calls them his sheep. What does Christ call them? Now in the Bible, Jesus says that when he returns, he's going to set the goat on his left hand. Never mind that you're sitting on that side of the room. It doesn't apply to you. Praise God. He's going to set the goats on his left hand, and he's going to set the lambs, guess where? On his right. Does anybody know the difference between a lamb and a goat? The Bible says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Do you know that goats have these two things on their head? They're called horns. And do you know what the goats like to do from time to time? Uh, It's usually the male goats, because they're more stubborn. They like to butt heads. They like to do what? Butt heads. So how can I tell in my Christian experience if I'm a sheep or if I'm a goat? Well, Jesus said if you're a sheep, you would follow my voice. You would hear my voice. You would do what I said. Jesus says to us, "Uh, uh, Brother Paul, I, I would prefer if you spoke this way. Yes, Lord, that's a sheep. Brother Paul, I would prefer for your health If you refrain from these things, eat this instead. This is good for you. Yes, Lord. That's a sheep. Brother Paul, I would prefer if you did this as opposed to that. Yes, Lord, I followed you with everything else, but... I told you that the goats, what they do is they butt heads. Isn't that right? 
When Jesus brings something to our attention, and rather than, yes, Lord, help me, God, and by thy grace, we give him a but, we are testifying that in that specific area of our lives, we're not sheep, but we're goats. Now, I believe that God has enough power to take even a goat and by the grace of God make them a sheep. I believe that God has enough power to take a tear and make them wheat. Feel free to approach my brother because I'm clearly in trouble. <laughs> now, the Bible refers to this as both wheat and tares often. You'll see that in the, in the New Testament. And what I as I study the Word of God, is that God is interested in a, guess what, whole wheat church. Now, we don't understand that because we're stuck on the other type of bread, my brother. We, we, we got to think about this thing. God is looking to get the tear mindset out of his church so that we're all wheat. We are all sheep. And when God is able to do that, God will have, guess what kind of church? A whole wheat church. Some of you don't get excited when you hear about bread. I was sitting up here just a moment ago and a sister gave me some, some very special uh, cinnamon bread. I'm going to take it home to my wife and we're going to enjoy that by the grace of God. So when I talk to you about bread, there's a special place in my heart. I know what I'm talking about. Jesus says man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Is that the type of people you desire to be tonight? When every earthly support is cut off, heavenly support never ceases. What do you say? I believe that there are always more in a room that are for me than there can ever be against me. I know that the enemy of our souls is not pleased with what we're getting ready to hear tonight, beloved. But by the grace of God, we're going to hear every single word. Amen? Amen. Every single word. And so as we're waiting for the mic, well, praise the Lord, he answers prayer. We're going to move forward. We know that the world must respond to the gospel message of the first angel sent by Jesus Christ. This results in two classes of people by their response. But then there's this other angel that announces the resulting spiritual condition of those who reject the first angel's message. The second angel said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So what spiritual condition is Babylon in today? A fallen one, isn't that right? Go to Hosea chapter 14. I want you to see from your Bibles what that means. What does the second angel mean when he says that Babylon is fallen? We know that Babylon has rejected the message of the first angel, which we have seen to be the everlasting gospel, which is the power of God. Now, if you reject power, you find yourself powerless. Does that make sense? All right. Now, the Bible says in Hosea chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, it says, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen, how? By thine iniquity. Go to verse 9. Go to verse 9, the same text. It says, Who is wise, and he shall understand these things? Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall do what? Fall therein. 
So what we're seeing here is that when the second angel shows up and declares that Babylon is fallen, what it is saying, in fact, is that by rejecting the first angel's message, by rejecting the gospel, by rejecting the power of God, which alone can help her overcome sin, she finds herself in a fallen condition. In the same way, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it was not called the stand of man. It was called the fall. Is it making sense? So the second angel announces the resulting spiritual conditions. To reject the gospel is to fall. To accept it is to stand. Question, if falling equals transgression. If falling equals transgression and sin, can you and I in our own power do anything but fall? Do you know the Bible says, let him who thinketh he stand take heed lest he fall. Think about it. If a young woman came in here tonight rolling in on a wheelchair and her loving father takes her up by her arms and stands her upright, would it be right in her estimation to think that she stands? Not when she's dependent on someone else. You and I, beloved, find ourselves in a wheelchair even this afternoon, this evening, completely dependent upon the everlasting arms of our Father. Did you know, however, that the Bible promises that when we lean upon Jesus, he is actually able to keep us from falling? Go in your Bible to the book of Jude. We're going in our Bibles to the book of Jude. It is that book just before Revelation. It is only one chapter. The book of Jude and verse 24. The Bible says, speaking of Christ, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. The Bible says that while you and I cannot stand on our own, every time we try, we fall. That's what happened with Babylon. She fell because she rejected the power of God that was sent. If we would rely upon Christ rather than upon self, the Bible says Jesus is able to keep us from falling. So is there anyone in this room under the sound of my voice who needs to be classified as Babylon in a fallen condition? Not if we receive Jesus, beloved. Wherever Jesus is, a people are prepared to stand. Say that with me. Wherever Jesus is, a people are prepared to to stand. But then there was this other angel called the third angel who announced the final resulting judgments. The final conflict involves the worship of the beast in contrast with the worship of the creator. Notice how the bearers of this message, Revelation chapter 13, Turn to Revelation chapter 13. I want you to see the chapter that specifically deals with the beast's power. In Revelation chapter 13, the Bible says something very specific. And I need you to understand what it says, because unless you are armed in these last days, you and I will find ourselves bowing at the feet of the beast, and we would never even know it. 
Pay close attention to what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4, the Bible says, And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? And what is the final question? Who is able to make war with him? The Bible says that that beast was given power over every nation, every kindred, every tongue, and every people. Revelation chapter 13. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 14 that in answer to that beast's dominion, God sent a first, second, and third angel's message that was addressed to every nation, every kindred, every tongue, and every people. Beloved, that is called warfare. What is it called? When you're dealing with an enemy that has a particular dominion, and you send in your troops to address the people in that specific dominion, you are at war. The question was asked in the Bible, who shall be able to make war against the beast? Beloved, the answer is no one who doesn't understand the first, the second, and the third angel's message. The very fact that Jesus addressed it to the people that are lost in the dominion of the beast means that it is the only method to succeed in our warfare against the Antichrist. Beloved, we have to understand this thing tonight. We have to understand it. The bearers of this message are at war with the beast power. Their message, the first, second, and third, is addressed to those over whom the beast was given dominion. And only those who carry this message will overcome the beast, his mark, and his number. The very fact that we're sitting in this room tonight, or standing, is evidence enough that God's desire is for you and I to overcome the beast, to overcome his mark, and to overcome his number. I say praise God. Three angels, one message, beloved. The first angel brings what is called the what? The gospel. The second angel res, uh, declares the resulting spiritual condition of those who reject or accept the gospel. And the third angel declares the judgments that occur as a result of the rejecting of that gospel. And so the second and third angel of Revelation chapter 14 declare the results of accepting or rejecting what the first angel had to bring. Do you suppose it is important that we understand what it is that the first angel brought us? Absolutely. The Bible said that the first angel brought us what is called the everlasting gospel. In the book of Mark, the Bible says believing or rejecting it is a matter of eternal life. Does it matter? Does it matter? In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul told us to beware of false gospels. Did you know that there is not just one gospel out there tonight? Beloved, there are people, listen, I, when I tell you there are some strange winds some very strange doctrines going on outside there today. I've heard of people that believe, and this is not to, to knock on the people I believe that God loves these people, amen? But I've heard of people that believe that the only way you can be saved is with a drop of honey on your forehead. Beloved, does Jesus save us by drops of honey on our forehead? You're quiet. So you believe that? 
Talk to me, beloved. I'm not picking on you tonight. I want us to think. I want us to understand. The Bible says, come let us reason together. God can be reasoned with. The fact that there are people that think we're saved by dropping honey on our foreheads tells us, beloved, that there's a world out there who want to serve Jesus, but they have yet to been, to been told how they can do that. Do you want to be the, the army that God sends to go and tell these people? Do you want to be God's special forces that he uses to save those from themselves who don't even know about this Savior we're learning about tonight? The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, that we are to beware of false gospels. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 21, the Apostle Paul said that if the gospel is hidden from you, you can't be saved. The gospel is not something that we can be saved without. So I have called this the gospel test. What did I call it? The gospel test. So I'm going to test you right now. Are you ready? The Apostle Paul said that if it is the gospel, you can't be saved without it. So whatever the gospel is, we cannot afford to not have it. Pay close attention. Are there people that we have loved that are dead in the grave this evening who knew nothing about drinking the right amount of water? Yes, there are people who, who are in the grave today who knew nothing about taking care of their health. Isn't that right? So then is health on its own the gospel? No, a man can be saved in ignorance of that. At ignorance, the Lord blinks. He winks at that. Are there people in the grave tonight who never knew anything, beloved, about how to pray? Yes. Are there any among them that the Lord can save? I feel like I came in here with, with, a, with a pop quiz that we weren't ready for. There are people in the grave right now who don't know anything about reading the Bible. They couldn't tell you Genesis from Revelation. But do you know that according to the law in the heart, according to what they know to be true, that they lived up to, do you know Jesus is able to save them with the light they had? I need you to understand this because the fact that you're in here tonight studying the Bible does not make you or I better than anybody else out there. Jesus wants to save everyone that he possibly can, and he deals with us according to the light that we have. Now question, is there anybody in the grave today who rejected Jesus that can be saved? Talk to me, beloved. Be honest. Are there people in the grave today who rejected Jesus that can be saved? Go in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 4. I want you to see this from your Bible. I don't want you to take my word for it. Acts chapter 4, beloved. In the book of Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So I'm going to ask the question again. Is there anyone in the grave who has rejected Jesus that can be saved by any other name? No. I want you to understand there's a difference in asking the question, are there any in the grave who did not know Jesus? That's different from those who are in the grave who knew but rejected Jesus. Yesterday night, we talked about the unpardonable sin, did we not? 
Yesterday night, we talked about the unpardonable sin, and we saw, based upon the Word of God, that it is impossible for you and I to commit a sin that would stop God from loving us. Isn't that right? However, there was a sin that the Bible called unbelief that put us in a position where God could not save us, not because he's not a savior and he doesn't want to do that, but because unbelief, beloved, acknowledges no savior. The only way that we can get to heaven, the only way that we can be changed from the way we are today into the image of God once again is if Christ has a close, finish it, intimate, personal relationship with you and I. Beloved, we need Christ. And so based upon the gospel test of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 21, we can conclude that while understanding health is good, in and of itself, it's not the gospel. Because there are those who are, who are uh, buried in the grave who never knew how to take care of themselves that God is able to save according to the light they had. But in contrast, there's not a person in the grave, beloved, there's not a person alive who can reject the provision of God in the, son of his, uh, in the person of his son, Jesus, that can claim salvation. The very fact that you can't be saved without Christ tells you that he is the gospel. The very fact that Christ is a necessity for salvation should tell you that he is the gospel. The gospel is not a list of do's and don'ts. The gospel is not a summary of different doctrines. The gospel is a person, and the person wants to get to know you this evening. Somebody says, Brother Paul, God knows all things. He already knows me. I know that. Think about it. In the book of Genesis, God created the earth in how many days? Six days, and then what did he do on the seventh? He rested, and he blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Now think about it, beloved. God works for six days. He makes the trees. He makes the fruit. He makes the sunshine. He makes the moon and the stars, the water, the animals. Husbands, he makes Eve. Amen. Praise God. Amen. And then on the seventh day, God does something very special. He carves out a piece of time. Do you know that God is bigger than time? God exists in eternity, beloved, but God took the time on the seventh day to carve out a piece of time to do what? Spend it with you. Jesus is interested in getting to know you and I. He knows who we are, but when was the last time that we talked with him? Husbands, you can turn your, you turn your eyes off if you want. I'm going to ask this for the wives. And sisters, how many of you would be happy if you didn't spend time with your husband? Husbands, I'm going to ask you the same question. Wives, you can close your eyes if you'd like. Husbands, how many of you would be happy if you did not spend time with your wives? The key to happiness is that time must be spent effectively. It must be spent how? effectively. Do you know that it is possible to live in a house with somebody, whether they're your sibling or whatever the case may be, and to never actually know that person? How many of you have been in the same classroom with students for four years and plus and never knew the people that were sitting right in front of you? God wants to spend time with us. It's not enough for us to come to church or to come to meetings. When we go home, do you know Jesus cares what we have to say before we go to sleep? 
Jesus cares what we have to say when we wake up in the morning. Jesus cares what we have to say when we're feeling sad, when we're feeling lonely, when we are happy. There's not an area of your life that you can point to that Christ is not interested in playing a specific part. How many of you in here can say that you woke up by your own strength? Do you know that when you sleep, your brain still functions? When you sleep, your heart still beats. When you sleep, your blood still flows, and all of these things, whether you choose to receive him or reject him, are by the grace of a loving God who wants to get to know you. Now, beloved, I'm nobody. The fact that Jesus wants to know me, that, that, that makes me want to put time aside to pick up my Bible, to put time aside to say a prayer. It doesn't matter if it's for five minutes. You know, you know uh, even right now, I'm thinking about my wife, Ashley, back home. And I can't wait to get back to her to spend time because while I love spending time with you, forgive me, she's my favorite person in the entire world. Everything about a true relationship is built on the effectual spending of time. And God wants to spend it with you and I, beloved. In bringing to us the everlasting gospel, the first angel has brought to us a person, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus has approached us and all them that dwell upon the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people through the first angel's message. Our treatment of this message testifies if there is any love for Jesus in us. Think about it. If I gave you a gift right now, and you took that gift, and you spat on it, and you threw it onto your car, and you rolled right over it. Some of you, that might not be enough. You put it in reverse, you roll right back over, amen? The way that we treat the gift testifies to how we think of the giver, isn't that right? When God gives us time, beloved, the way that we use the time testifies to what we think about the giver. Our treatment of this message testifies if there is any love for Jesus in us. This angel uplifts Christ as the sinner's only hope, the power of God to save men. And he presents him to us in a most precious and solemn context. In what context does the first angel present God to us? And I saw another angel, flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, to every kindred, to every tribe, to every people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. The hour of his judgment, what, beloved? is come. The first angel presents God to us in a specific context, and that context is that of judgment. I'm going to close it right here. On this screen, you have the picture of a man. That man represents you, and he represents me. And he's standing there in front of the law of God before Jesus. I don't know if you can see him on the screen up here. He's kind of small here, but he's there. 
The Bible said in James chapter 2 that we should speak and do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Brother Paul, I thought the law generated unto bondage. How is it that law and liberty can even be in the same sentence? The Bible says that we will be judged by the law of liberty. And so this man finds himself standing before the law of liberty and his life is being reviewed. Do you know that this is not an accurate picture of what the judgment looks like? What's wrong with the picture? Somebody tell me. We're closing right now. We're, it's over. But I want you to understand something. What is wrong with this picture? Why is this picture not an accurate depiction of what the judgment looks like, beloved? Oh. Open book test. What is wrong with the previous picture, beloved? Do you see how the man in the picture stands before a holy God by himself? Do you know that's not Bible? I like this picture. Amen. Amen. The Bible says, beloved, my little children, these things write I unto you that you do what? Sin not. And if any man should sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The word advocate, it means lawyer. It means friend. It means someone who has your best interests at heart. Beloved, we would never stand in the judgment before God in so sad a state as this. There is someone there. Notice in the picture how Jesus goes from the top right to where you are to make sure that your life of sin is clothed with his robe of righteousness, to make sure that your weakness is made up by his strength, to ensure that though in our own weakness, the only thing we can do is fall by the grace of God, by the grace of God alone, you and I can be made to stand. Is it your desire in here tonight to have a close, intimate, and personal relationship with that man? Is there anyone in this room who has a case that they think is hopeless? Pastor Rob stood right here this evening and he told you that to fear God is to love him, beloved. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. God is not looking for people that are afraid and, and that stay away from him. He's looking to draw us near. And the only way that we can come to him is by looking to Christ. I'm going to kneel in my favorite place, but as I kneel, he says, and I, if I should be lifted up. Beloved, is your heart being drawn yet? He says, I will draw all men unto me. Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He is our lawyer. Trust him with your case.